Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech. So we, we got this scene last week that during a famine, this man Elimelech and his two sons and his wife went to Moab to try to be migrant workers and try to find a place where they could get food. Ended up being Elimelech and his two sons died. And that was left with Naomi, his wife, and then Ruth and a woman named Orpah, her two daughters-in-law. Well, when Naomi said to her daughter, said, you need to go home. It's time for you to go back to your families. I'm not going to make you stay with me. I have no prospects. Orpah went home. Ruth stayed. And that, that is the, the demonstration of love we discussed last week. Well, here we are. They're back in Bethlehem now. They're in a small town in Israel. They have no means. There is no way for them to... Uh, provide for themselves, other than what is called gleaning. And this is what Ruth is going to do. She's going to go out into the fields to glean after the harvest. Now, what this would be is, as the harvesters were going through the field, there would be pieces that would fall. There'd be some that they couldn't quite get to. And it was the gleaner's job to go behind and pick up whatever was left over. And this was not... Uh, something that was sneaky. This was, elite, this was legal. Uh, this is something that God specifically provided for in the law for the poor. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So, God had various things uh, baked into the law of Moses that would allow poor and, and widows and sojourners and things to provide for themselves. And one of the ways he did that is when you're harvesting your field, you don't need to be so scrupulous to get every last single piece of grain and go all the way to the edges and all the way to the corners. It says, just harvest it. And as you go, don't go back and pick up anything that you drop. And those that are poor are allowed to come behind you and pick up whatever falls, and that's how they can be provided for themselves. It was a great way of God providing for the poor while also making sure those who were poor did not become idle, which the New Testament tells us is a dangerous thing, and they were still able to go out and, and work for themselves. Well, this is where Ruth is. She's going to go out and she's going to glean during the barley harvest, as chapter 1 told us was the time here. Now, that's good that she's able to do this, but you can imagine how Naomi would have felt about this. This is her hometown. Not only that, but they would have been landless. In order for them to travel to Moab, they would have had to sell their inheritance. Every family, every tribe in, in Israel got a specific inheritance plot of land. And they would have had to sell that to somebody else in order to go. So when she comes home, there are fields that belonged to her family, to Elimelech's family, that someone else is working and living off of that she's unable to live off because they don't have the money to buy it back. Now, we don't know when the year of Jubilee, when everything went back to its original or owner would have been, but also this is the time of the judges, so it's doubtful they would have even observed the year of Jubilee because they were not following the Lord at this time. So she's reduced to being a, a poor widow in her own town. This is why she had said in the previous chapter, don't call me Naomi or Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. The times were evil, and the bitterness that Naomi had was beginning to close her off. And we talked about this last week, how we're going to see Naomi is going to learn four things that, that she had forgotten or had chosen to believe, and that's what we're going to see here. She was bitter. And we too can be bitter about the times in which we live. Isn't that true? where we can see our social structures shake or change in a way that we don't like or approve of, when we see lawlessness increase, as in the time of the judges, where it says at certain times you couldn't even walk on the main road because it was so dangerous and people would, would harass you and rob you, so we can get to the point where we stop believing that good people even exist. Now, we can be all theological and snooty and say, well, no one is good but God alone. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying righteous people that are doing their best to follow the Lord. We'll shorthand that for good people. We can start to say things are so bad, there's no one left. 
There's no more good people. There's no one that cares. No one that, that loves the poor. Nobody that loves their country. Nobody that wants to take care of what's been given to us by the Lord. And we can feel very justified in that as we look out upon the social scene. And this is how Naomi would have felt. But we're teased by this, this name that is dropped here. It's interesting. Several times in this chapter, when it gives the name Boaz, it extends the grammar in a way that is almost tedious to read and then gives Boaz's name right at the end of the sentence. It's almost like a, like a grammatical drum roll. Like, well, who is this guy that we're talking about? And his name was Boaz. Boaz. It says in the ESV, which is what we're reading from, a worthy man. But literally there, this is a mighty man of strength or even of valor. And that word for strength is not just physical strength, although that certainly could have been part of it. He could have been a warrior of some kind. Uh, but it also implies wealth. It implies status. It implies reputation. Is a great man. I think that's another a good way to translate that. There's this great man in this little town of Bethlehem. Was he big and important and, and known throughout history? No. But he was a good man, and he was a great man, who just happens to own a field. And the literal Hebrew in verse 3, when it says, she happened upon it, it says, and her chance chance her to come to his field. It's, it's the Hebrew is really kind of funky in how it says that. It's emphasizing kind of like you might say, and it just so happened that Ruth showed up at her relative's field, or Naomi's relative's field, and began to glean there. So we see in verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now that word behold, it's hine in Hebrew. It's like she went out to the field and then behold, here he comes. Here comes Boaz. In the midst of evil days, there is one strong man. There is one good man who is doing the right thing. So you look at Naomi's bitterness and her anger, even against God here, that there's nothing left for us. We're destitute. We're broken. No one's going to help us. But the narrator says, but there was this guy, Boaz, who comes along the scene. And you know, isn't it odd that there can be a certain pleasure that we take in being pessimistic? You ever notice that? That it, 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 in a strange, twisted way, it feels good to your flesh to feel like there's no hope. And if you don't believe me, why do you think rants are so popular on YouTube? I'm going to go listen to somebody rant about my favorite movie or about the country or I'm going to listen to more bad news on the news every single day and I'm going to complain. You ever been around somebody, nobody in this room I'm sure, who if they're not complaining they have nothing to say? They're not fun to be around people like that, but they're out there. Where you, you try to say something positive, and they're kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, well, nothing to contribute to this conversation. <laughs> we enjoy feeling hopeless. Why is that? I think part of the reason is because it liberates us in a way, in our minds, to think, well, therefore, I'm justified in my laziness, or I'm justified in my inability to walk with the Lord in the way I'm supposed to, or I'm even justified in my bad feelings. I get to lose my temper and feel righteous about it. It liberates us. You know who did this in the Bible? Elijah. Elijah was a great man. Elijah went to heaven in a fiery chariot, but he had his moments. In 1 Kings 19, I'm going to read verse 14 and then verse 18. This is right after fire comes down from heaven. Oh, amazing story. But then Jezebel sets out to kill him. So he flees to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. And Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God, it, we failed. We failed. It's only me. You might as well kill me. He prays and asks for death a couple times in this chapter. But in verse 18, God tells him, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord says, Elijah, you're great, and I appreciate everything you're doing for me, but don't ever make the mistake of thinking you are the only one who is serving me. I've got 7,000 other people that, are, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's a lot. That's a lot. There are some, I'm, I don't tend to believe this, but they make a good point. There are some that believe by saying 7,000, he's not even trying to give them a specific number. He's just trying to say seven, which is like the number of completion, thousands. Like 
Like, you have no idea, Elijah. I've got, as Paul, he would say to Paul later in Acts 18.10 about Corinth, I have many people in this city. So God specifically told Elijah, and he's going to gently lead Naomi to the same conclusion, that despair is wrong. Elijah was wrong. When we are wrong, when we look out upon our country, our family, our city, our workplace, and say, no good people left. Times have changed. It's all downhill from here. I've heard people say things like that. The only thing left is the rapture. It's like, well, look, as much as I'd like to believe that, because I'd really love to get raptured, the Lord has told us until that happens, the church is unstoppable. That you'll kick down the gates of hell, my friends. So we don't get to feel that way. Boaz reminds us, he gives us an example, not just of how to think about things, but how to be in times like this. He reminds us that while you and I might not be able to affect the nation or the world, we can tend our own garden. I love using that illustration because it reminds me of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God planted the Garden of Eden, and then he told Adam, he said, go fill the world and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. It's kind of like God said, I planted a garden here. Now I want you to take your family, go out into the rest of the world and plant more of these gardens. I want you to make the whole world under my domain and under my people to rule over it and make a great thing out of it. And that commandment has not changed. Every single one of us has, you might say, a garden that God has given us to tend. And that might be small. It might be huge. It might be Billy Graham all the way up to your Sunday school teacher that had a profound influence upon you. You know, D.L. Moody, who had an amazing evangelistic ministry, was discipled by a shoe salesman. It wasn't even his full-time job to preach. But he discipled this little boy among many others who raised up to do amazing things. We can tend our own garden. We can shine the light. And in your dark times, you can be the one that's bringing hope and joy and peace to embittered souls around you. Is Boaz going to change Israel? No. But is he going to help Naomi and Ruth? Yes, he is. And that's the level at which we need to be thinking about our lives and what kind of effect we have on the world. So we're going to look at what Boaz does here. We're going to get three things that we can walk away with today about how to start doing this, tending your own garden, which is really the way the Lord has taught us to do this. Let's read verses five through seven. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Literally, to whom is this young woman? To whom, using that phrase is... Uh, a, the way they would describe marriage, for example. So by whose young woman, he's, he's kind of saying, whose wife is this? Is she married? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Okay, so Boaz shows up and after saying hello, the first thing out of his mouth is, hey, who's that over there? <laughs> and uh, we chuckle at that. You're kind of supposed to, because this is, among other things, a love story. And Boaz like, hey, what's up, fellas? Hey, who's that? <laughs> I've never seen her before. <laughs> like, oh, that's, uh, that's that young Moabite woman. So uh, real quick, you might have a footnote there in, in verse 7, where it says, she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. That's one of the most difficult verses in actually the Hebrew Bible to translate, because what he says is, she stood and worked and rested, and it doesn't, we're not quite sure how to put all these words together. We know what they all say, but the grammar is very difficult. Uh, I read one guy who even believes that this man had mistreated her, and you're supposed to read it like he's stammering, like, uh, um, uh, yeah, no, she's been working all day. I didn't, I didn't bother her, which maybe explains why the next thing Boaz is going to say is, I've commanded my young men to leave you alone and stop harassing you. There's one way of reading it, just like this, that she's been working all day, but she took a short break. Another way to read it, so this is kind of how the actual text works, is she showed up and asked to help, and I was waiting for you to show up and give her permission to work. So she's been standing around waiting in the house all day until you came. So it doesn't really change the sense of it there. The point is that she's been waiting, and she's been either working or she's been waiting for Boaz to show up. And uh, there are some of those translation difficulties that remind us we are reading a translated Bible. But as I, somebody that knows the language at least a little bit, I can tell you our translations are pretty good. We should be grateful for them. But I love that we see Boaz asking after her. Whose young woman is this? You might phrase that this way. Who t who's taking care of her? 
Who is it? Does she have a husband? Does she have a father? What family does she belong to? Where, does she normally work here? Does she work somewhere else? He's not just inquiring after her identity. He's inquiring after her security. He's asking, is she all right? Is, is she going to be okay out here by herself? First thing that we want to do, if we want to be like Boaz, if we want to be that light shining in dark times, you've got to pay attention to the needs around you. Just this little simple act of observing and saying, who is that? That means Boaz paid enough attention to the people that worked for him that when somebody new showed up, he recognized immediately. And not only noticed, oh, there's another gleaner today. And the gleaners weren't even part of the, his organization. They weren't part of his operation. They were just there so that they could go home and have some food. But he's paying attention even to those that are volunteering and not even working for him. He's paying close attention. And this is what we ought to do. If you want to be living in dark times, which you may believe we're living in right now, I'd probably agree with you. What's to be done? You start by paying attention to those that are in your garden, or shall we say, your domain, your sphere of influence. Boaz saw his field as his domain to be used for the Lord's business. This is where I do the harvest. This is where I make money. This is where I employ other people and other people come out to work. But as far as I'm concerned, it's not all about that. It's about doing everything for the glory of God, for the love of the people that are here. Now, for each one of us, that's what we need to do as well, to reframe how we view the spheres of influence we have as those things to be used for the Lord's glory. Now, this could be your business. Some of y'all maybe own your own business. You have a position of authority within yours, or maybe you don't. Maybe you just have a job, right? That's nothing wrong with that either. But what is your level of influence? Do you see that as a garden to be tended for the glory of the Lord? Do you see that as falling under the same category that God gave to Adam in Genesis chapter 1? That this is where you have been sent out. This is where you are to make something wonderful and make something great for the Lord's glory. It could be your household. I really do not like how we as culturally have diminished the view of homemakers. That especially you ladies, that that house and those children that you're raising and the man that comes home that you take care of, are you seeing that as something that is degrading because I'm not out there getting noticed by people? Or do you see that as something that, as God intended it, this is where I get to live for the Lord. This is where I get to influence people. This is where I get to glorify God in my neighborhood and in, with my kids and with my husband and with my family that will be part of this and neighbors that come in through the door. You get extended out to your neighborhood. Do you see that as a place where, you know, you come home so that you can watch TV before you go back to work? Or do you see this as, these are lives. These are lives. These are people that are going through things. These are people that have joys and tragedies and triumphs and sorrows. And it's up to me to tend this garden and serve them and pay attention to what's going on. It could be your online presence. Zach and I have been talking about this more, that... Uh, you know, our, our YouTube channel grows and more people are watching on the podcast and more people are calling about the radio like every week. And it makes us think, you know, we ought to make sure we're paying good attention to what's going on out there because there's a lot of people that we get to reach. And it might seem like a silly thing, but you know what? We're, we get to minister in 2024 and that's what you got to do. It's not just a place to go and blow off steam or maybe add some more bucks to the church bank account. There are people that are going to encounter us and encounter Jesus through things like podcasts and videos. What about you? What about your hobbies? There are some people, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, who love the Lord, and when, it, when they're at home, when they're at church, when they're at work, man, I'm all in for Jesus. But when it comes time to, I don't know, golf, I'm, I'm not talking about religion. When I'm gaming with my buddies, just that stuff's off the table. I've got, you know, I'm here to, to detach and kind of catch my breath. That's not how a Christian goes about things. We do all things for the glory of God. And if you can't do it for the glory of God, should you be doing it? That's not the message for the day, but you know, maybe somebody needs to hear it. God is king. That's what it means when we, I say I'm tending this garden. God is king here. I don't care what they're doing out there. When you walk through those doors, we serve the Lord. We don't talk like that in this house. We don't say things like that about other people. You know, we don't engage in such activities in this place. If you're going to work for me, you're not going to treat them like that. You're not going to go behind the back. You're going to do things forthrightly as the Lord commanded us to. All for God's glory and in obedience to his commandments. And this is what Boaz is doing. And the first way he does this is by paying attention to the people that are there. Rather than just keeping his head down and trying to get through the day, he's got his eyes up, he's got his head on a swivel, and he's looking for who's there. 
Now, I'm not trying to be hard on you. I have had jobs where the best thing to do is clock in, keep your head down until it's time to clock out. But we should hope that the Lord would mature us and grow us to a place where we are no longer being affected by where we go, but we are actually having an effect when we walk in the room. And that can take time. It can take time, but it should be our goal. Because Paul told us in Romans 12, 15 through 17, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Baked into all of that is that there is an attention being paid to the people around you. Are they laughing or weeping? I need to know so that I can join them in that. I'm associating with people who are lower than me. There are those that you know, maybe are in a lower tax bracket than I am, and we encounter each other at the store. Maybe I don't want to you know, brush shoulders with them. Or I'm the boss, and they're the, you know, they're the worker, and I don't want to talk to them. Or whatever it might be. The Lord tells us, don't live that way. You associate with everybody. Don't be haughty. Like, well, I'm somebody now. I worked real hard to get where I am, and I'm, you, know, you can work the hard the same way I did. The Lord goes, you worked hard to get where you are. How about make it easier for the people coming along behind you? We can become so obsessed with the big picture of the nation or the world or even like the city that we miss what's right in front of us. We needed this reminder several times during the pandemic, if you remember, where I had to keep reminding us, hey, yeah, I know there's some wacky stuff going on in California or whatever, but you don't live there. (laughs) Be blessed and be happy with where you live. Be blessed and be happy with what's going on in your family or in your house. Don't miss the joy that is happening in your life right now because you're concerned, you know, maybe you're worried about the virus or you're upset with the government one way or another. Just don't miss what's right in front of you because of the big picture. And we will do that. And we can use it even as an excuse. There are folks that even do this with theology. So I don't have time to love my wife. There are people out there who are Calvinists. I I don't have time to take care of my household. Don't you know there's those that don't believe in the pre-trib rapture of Christ? You say, ah, how ridiculous. You meet those people where their entire personality is they're very angry about some theological matter or other. I have found, with very little exception, the folks that are the most venomous and the most aggressive in that way have got some serious parts in their lives where they are not walking in discipleship to Jesus. And they use their concern for some big matter that might truly be important as a cloak for their personal life. And you can do the same thing with the news, do the same thing with sports. Boaz took an interest. He paid attention. He looked around to see what was right in front of him so he wouldn't miss it. Likewise, for you, unplug sometimes. Lift up your eyes, take out your AirPods, and look around you and see who's there. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Fully told is reporting. It has been reported to me. It's that double emphasis that you see a lot in Hebrew. How you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Literally, they're the people that you did not know the day before yesterday. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Isn't that a nice image there? And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So Boaz is kind to Ruth, which is kind of the first nice thing we've seen in this story, isn't it? Even Ruth showing loyalty to her mother-in-law is is surrounded by the heartbreak and the tragedy of what they've been through. But now there's a nice man in the story. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Somebody's being nice. He invites her to work and also to share with his laborers. He says, hey, you're, you're a single woman and you don't have a male protector in your life. You can start going to all these fields. There's some guys that are not going to treat you well. 
I promise you, if you stay here, we're going to look after you and take good care of you. So you stay with my young ladies that are working in my fields, and you'd be just like them. You know, I'm, I don't have authority over you. I can't tell you what to do, but this would be the best thing for you, which would have been a concern for her, of course. He says, just don't go anywhere. Stay here. Stay safe. And you see how overwhelmed she is. Like, the, the word it says when she fell down and bowed before him is a word that is usually translated worship. It's not that she you know, worshipped Boaz, but it's the, the level of gratitude she had is the same kind of gratitude that we ought to have towards the Lord. It's pretty special. So the second thing we have to do if we want to be like Boaz and tend our garden, you're paying attention, good, now you've got to take the time. This is the, sometimes the harder step. You can't just notice what's going on. You've got to get involved with people and help. Boaz noticed, oh man, that, that poor thing. Okay, well, I'm glad she's here. It could have ended right there. Instead, he said, hey, Miss Ruth, come over here. You don't need to go anywhere else. We're going to take good care of you. We're going to keep you safe. You spend time with my young ladies. I've already told the guys to leave you alone. No one's going to give you any trouble here. Why would you do that for me? Well, I've heard everything that you did for your mother-in-law and and may the Lord repay you for what he's done. That's getting involved, taking the time. He's extending personal love to this woman. And as we we're going to hear later, he had no hope or expectation of becoming this woman's husband. He's just being nice. He's just being kind, which is what we're supposed to do. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law of Moses? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, which is why to get back to that theology thing very briefly, you can know everything there is to know about the Bible, but if you don't love God and if you don't love other people, you're missing the whole point. You're missing it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Did you know, by the way, that verse that Jesus is quoting, love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus 19, the same chapter that tells the, the reapers, leave some for the gleaners. That's how the Lord considered loving your neighbor. Practical love, not just emotional affection, which is important. I don't like that we diminish that so much. You ought to have brotherly affection for one another. But you also need to act on that brotherly affection. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's your answer to people that say silly things like, the most important thing that you can do is love yourself. Okay, great. Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So, Whatever love you think you ought to have for yourself, you should be equally increasing your love for other people. I imagine that phrase is going to fall by the wayside pretty soon here, in my opinion. But you've got to take the time. When you notice what's going on, you notice a problem in your house or in your job or in your neighborhood. You know, you've, you've seen the way your, the husband and wife next door speak to each other. Or you can see the way their kids are acting. Or you, you see certain official folks coming up to the door every so often and you can see they're nervous. It's good that you're paying attention. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to take the time? I'll give you an example uh, for here from our ministry. You know, we, we heard there was an opportunity for us to go to Uganda and do ministry there. Well, that's great. You know, there's ministry everywhere. But actually taking the time to go to Uganda to see what was there, as I also went to Peru, as I also went back to Nepal, and to examine what's going on, that's got to be the first step. What can be done? It's one thing to pray and know, oh, Lord, those poor people in Africa, they need to hear the gospel. They do. How can we help? I don't know. Let's go take the time and find out. That's what we did with the prison ministry, you recall. By the way, this Friday, I'm going to be in one of the correctional facilities doing a hope event, playing music. So please keep me in prayer. Um, I'll give you an update on that when we come on Sunday. But uh, we knew we wanted to help those that were in prison because that was an issue that was rising in our cultural consciousness. And I don't want us to be just talking about things. Like, let's find out what Jesus said about it and go do what he said. And if you take the time, the Bible actually says quite a bit, remember those who are in prison. One of the specific things that Jesus will mention when he returns. So what do we do? We just showed up. And I, just, I called some people, tried to find out from different folks, what do we do? How do we help out? Why do you do prison ministry around here? Until we get connected with Jeremy and Prison Fellowship. And I said, could I just show up one week and just see what you're doing? He says, yeah, sure. I showed up that one week and saw what was going on. And guess what? The needs made themselves known immediately. The following week, the chaplain quit. Hey, Tyler, would you be willing to lead that class you came just to observe that one time? The needs made themselves available, and I did, by the way. Bryant Park Elementary School, 
calling them up and saying, how can we help? And if the thing is, if you call and take the time often enough, people will start to come to you. If they know, hey, they love us, they care, the people will start coming to you with their needs. And it could just be your friend's house. Sometimes if your friend is having a rough time, you need to get in your car and go. You get in the car and go over there. One of the hard things for those that are young in ministry have to learn is there will come times where you've got to tell your family, I'm very sorry, I've got to go. Someone's in the hospital. I'm very sorry, I've got to go. Someone's having a really rough time. I've got to bail somebody out of jail. I've got to go to someone whose spouse has passed away or whatever the case may be. Because that's what we're supposed to do is to take the time. Sometimes a simple phone call means the world to somebody. Even if it's only a few minutes, just talking to somebody, taking the time to actually say words. You know, I didn't say anything right. That was just, I don't know what I was doing, but uh, people don't remember the words. They remember the fact that you called and you took the time to try to find out. Even if there's nothing you can do, taking the time is in itself an act of love. Not only do you need to know how you can help, but you can speak. She says you spoke kindly. I love the literal there. She says, you've spoken to my heart. You spoke to my heart. That's a phrase we use in the church. It's actually from the Bible. This is what Jesus would do. When Jesus was on his way to heal the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus' daughter, a woman with the issue of blood touched his cloak and she was healed. Jesus stopped the procession, the ambulance that was basically rushing to help her. To get down on one knee and talk to this woman, he took the time. He didn't just notice the fact that she'd been healed. He needed to tell her that she was forgiven and that she was loved and that she was healed. That's Mark 5. We're going to be in there on Wednesday before too long. Boaz did not obsess over the news and gossip of what had happened to Ruth. He took the time to find out and see what he could do. Don't, don't, don't think that hearing about things is the same thing as doing something about them. Be an expert on the needs in your life. Pay attention and then take the time. Well, verses 14 through 17. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. could also be their vinegar. It's a condiment they would make uh, from fermented grapes. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. <laughs> Come sit with me. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, which would have been the bundles that they had already tied up. And do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her. And leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So not only let her come and take, take it where you've already been working, but drop a little extra. Drop a little extra. Guy's got it bad. <laughs> so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. She threshed it. And it was about an ephah of barley. Is that a lot? Yeah. Yes, it is. So Boaz uh, invites her to come and eat with him, which would have been a, a rather significant gesture. Because, I mean, you know, I'm the one that owns the field. These are the guys that work for me. You're just here to, you know, take care of your family. And you're not adding anything to my bottom line here. But you come and sit with me. He, he feeds her. He allows her to eat. And you also should consider, they probably had, had been, been required to watch how much they ate for a while. Right? They maybe had had to, you know, go on low rations and only eat a little bit. He says, you eat until you're done. You eat until you are full, and then you take some home with you. And then once she goes back out to start working, he turns, okay, guys, here's what I want you to do. You let her do whatever she wants. <laughs> now, you can imagine if they're, they're harvesting, you know, they're bundling up these, these sheaves, and somebody comes up and is starting to pick up and glean, like, get out of here. Just wait until we're done. He says, no, no, you just let her come right up. And if you drop it, let her take it. And, and, and drop some extra, too. Like, oh, no, I dropped another bundle. Like, you sure? Like, yeah. You know, you know those guys look at each other like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, man, sure. <laughs> He's very taken with her. Well, she's able to bring home what would about, amount to about 30 pounds of barley. So imagine Ruth lugging that home, right? Although if you've been to, you know, countries where they have to carry things, you'd be amazed. People can carry, like, on their heads like when you go to Nepal, like they'll put this strap around the forehead and on the back and then they'll just walk like up mountains with 100-pound bags of rice and things. So maybe it wasn't that impressive, but it's a lot. It's an amazing blessing. So what are we doing in order to be like Boaz? We're paying attention. We're taking the time to find out. And number three, do what you can. Just do what you can. You might not be able to fix everything. Is he able to bring Elimelech and Malone and Killian back from the dead? No. But can he make her situation a little better? Yeah, he can. 
And you are going to encounter a lot of situations that you can't fix, but can you make it a little better? Then do that. He took the time to get to know her, to find out what her needs were, and then to offer concrete ways to alleviate her situation. Within his own domain, he says, what do I have? I have a field. I have food. I can give you free food. I can make it easy for you. I can make sure that you don't have to worry about being harassed, which was as much a problem then as it is now for the young woman being around the working men. He says, you, we're going to take good care of you. We're going to feed you. And you never have to worry about anything ever again. She's still poor. She's still home with her mother-in-law. But it's better. It's better because Boaz was there. Let that be said about us in the situations we encounter. Remember we just read this not too long ago in Titus 3.14? Paul said, let our people, that's us, we people, Learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Urgent need. That's a need that you didn't plan or budget for, that somebody needs help to be devoted to meeting needs like that. Within your domain, there are ways you can help people and you need to do those things. What can I do? Has God blessed you with a lot of money? Then be free and generous with your money. Can you offer a ride to somebody or a room? Offer those things. Can you offer technical expertise? I know a lot of you in this room have it. A lot of us were raised, you know, setting up our parents' VCRs when we were seven or eight years old. <laughs> Do you have connections? Do you have connections for people where you can, I, look, I can't help with this, but I know somebody that might know somebody. Can you do that? That's needed. Can you give meals to somebody? Can you offer clothing to somebody? How about a kind word? We all can do that one. Well, I'm just not really very good with words. doesn't matter. People, as I said, don't remember what you say. Remember that you said it. Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry that's going on, and I'm praying for you. If there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. And actually mean that when you say it, by the way, because sometimes people will say that, and then you say, actually, here's what you could do, and everyone goes, ooh, yeah. All right. Mean it when you say that. Now, the, the wrong lesson would be, so don't say that, because people might actually ask. No, say it, and then also do it. How can you specifically help out? Now, you might sit there and think, I don't have any of those things you just described. Well, I need to be careful not to preach one of my favorite sermons in the middle of a different one, but in Acts chapter 9, we, we learn about Tabitha. Dorcas was her other name. What does she do? She sewed clothes. She was a widow who sewed for the church. Now, how do you compare that to somebody like Peter, right? Peter that was busted out of prison by angels and is writing books of the Bible and doing miracles and healing lame men and rebuking the government right to their face in the name of Jesus. What does she do? She sews clothes. But when she died, the church was so distraught, they called Peter and Peter laid hands on her and she rose from the dead. And there was a mighty revival in her city because she sewed. She never became a preacher. She never became an apostle. She didn't have a book tour. She just went right back to sewing. She did what was in her hand to the best of her ability, and it changed her entire city, and we're still talking about it. What did the Lord say to Moses? When Moses said, I can't talk to Pharaoh, what am I supposed to do? He said, what's that in your hand, Moses? A staff? Well, that staff, we're going to do wonderful things, Moses. We're going to blow the world's mind with that stick you're carrying around. Boaz did not worry about what he could not do. He took the time to do what he could. And the ripple effects of things like that, you should never underestimate them. Those of you that take care of family members that can't take care of themselves. Those of you that offer kind words when you can, go out of your way to do that. Those of you that make the phone call when you hear somebody's not doing so hot. Those of you that offer financial gifts, even if you're not wealthy, sometimes the most generous people you meet are poor folks. And they'll, they'll, yeah, here you go. Just take this, whatever you need. You do those things, you change the world. Because you're making countless situations around you a little bit better, which leads to those people doing the same thing, and it ripples outward. And Boaz is actually going to end up doing an awful lot for this family, but he starts with the simple things. So what's that process for you and I? Pay attention. Keep your eyes open. Don't be so self-centered that you're not looking for what's around you. Number two, take the time. You've got to find out what's going on. Investigate further to know how to help. And number three, do what you can. You might encounter situations where you go, I can't help, but I can love on you a little bit. I can let you talk it out for a few minutes. I can give you a kind word and brighten your day. I can babysit your kids so that you guys can just have a day to catch your breath. 
all sorts of things we can do to alleviate these situations. Maybe not to fix them, but to make them a little bit better. That's how you tend your garden. Verse 18. And Ruth took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? (laughs) And where have you worked? Remember, we don't know how long she had been gleaning at this point. It seems like she had... It was at the beginning of the barley harvest, but maybe there had been a few other fields she had tried before this one. In any case, she said, whoa, where did you work today? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today, that's another one of those drumroll passages, is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. You should underline that. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, Tov, good, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Remember, it's the time of the judges. Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. Not a, not a good time to be a single woman around the men where nobody can see you. So Ruth returns home. Naomi's shocked. And it's great. You get the initial shock of, where did all this food come from? And then the secondary shock of, Boaz? You were in Boaz's field? In verse 20, she blesses him for his chesed. When it says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, that's that word we talked about last week, the loving kindness, the steadfast love, that, that love that goes on and on and on and it honors its connections and is loyal to its relationships. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, she had thanked uh, Ruth and Orpah for showing chesed to their family. Now she says, now you found somebody else who will also show chesed to us. Boaz was a goel. That's the Hebrew word goel. It means redeemer. And it's not just a redeemer like somebody that buys back. It's a special role. It was a kinsman who had a legal and a moral obligation to lift the rest of the family out of poverty when they could, to buy back the land they had sold. If they had gone into debt slavery, to buy, uh, pay off their debts and get them out of that situation. Even sometimes to raise up offspring for those that had become destitute. You read about all this in Leviticus chapter 25. We will go into it in great detail when we get to some of these later chapters. But for right now, it's enough to know that he is one of those people. What's our point for today, though? point for today is you can see Naomi's heart softening just a little bit more. Last week was the first thing she learned. She learned that loyalty exists. She had that thought, nobody stays, everybody leaves, might as well just get rid of everybody. And it turns out, no, there are people that will stay. There are loyal people. Today, what is she learning? Kindness exists. Well, yeah, Ruth's my daughter-in-law. She has to stay with me. But these are dark times and dark days and no one's ever going to help. No, there are good people. There are kind people who love God and are used of the Lord to bring his kindness to the world. Maybe you're one of those people. You feel like Naomi sometimes. You feel like everything has fallen apart. You're like Jacob in the book of Genesis. All these things are against me. My family loves to use that phrase when something very trivial happens. You know, you're getting ice out of the fridge and one of them falls on the floor. All these things are against me. <laughs> you say, there's no one good. There's no one good's left. You hear this on TV. You hear it on podcasts. You hear it from sermons, unfortunately. There's no good men left. There's no good men. There's no good women left. No good churches anymore. I don't like messages like that. You know why? Because we've got a good church right here. No one preaches the, the true doctrine anymore. I'm like, well, I do. I'm just not famous. So are you just talking about famous churches? Because God doesn't see things that way. There's no patriots left. No one loves our country anymore. There's no good people anymore. How many times have we heard things like that? It's all over. It's all over. Psalm 37, which is the election year psalm, begins by saying, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't let bad people stress you out. I'm going to read from later on in that psalm, verses 18 through 20. It says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land 
and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus was quoting back to Psalm 37 when he said, the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And in that, that chapter, the meek are not just those that have a, a moral quality of humility. It is those that look at the darkness of the world and decide to serve the Lord in faithfulness in their own quiet little way. You might say, to tend their own garden. David is writing this psalm and said, look, I'm an old man now. I have seen a lot of bad guys. And if I were to give you their names, you wouldn't even know who they were. Because that's what happens. Those that spread themselves, use the word like spreading themselves like a vine, like kudzu, just spreading themselves everywhere. Oh, what are we going to do? He goes, blink, that's what you do. And then you'd look, well, where'd they go? Where do they go? Where do those people that we were so worried about, where do they go? It's funny to read old theology books. Because sometimes you'll have a chapter addressing this imminent threat to the church. And you're like, I never even heard of these guys. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's what happens. We are not permitted to despair. God always has a remnant. He always preserves his word. And he always preserves his church, even in the darkest days. Does this mean that you shouldn't have opinions about evil things going on? No. It doesn't even mean you shouldn't take a strong stand when the day comes. But it means that that is less important than your optimism and joy in Christ and tending your own garden, what's right in front of you. Verse 23, we close the chapter. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we see that Boaz takes good care of Ruth from barley harvest to wheat harvest. So from about the end of April to the beginning of May. So about two months here. But you can see that you even kind of got a cliffhanger here. It's like, and she lived with her mother-in-law. We're like, wait, that's it? So like he's giving her food, that's nice, but like things are still not great. Well, the story's not over yet. What does this chapter teach us, friends? We just addressed the attitude of despair that we're not supposed to have, but the main thing we should take from this is how to be a light in dark times not just to remember the light in dark times. Each one of us is able to make a true, positive difference in hard times, whether that's a personal hard time or a universal hard time, whether that's somebody whose father passed away or whether that's another pandemic. Your actions in your sphere of influence can make a true difference by living to the fullest the life that God has given you. That is what a Christian concerns himself with. Not so much with the, the back and forth of nations and kings and, and these mighty corporations and all the rest. We're concerned with what's right in front of us. Taking care of that. Walking out the list of things God has prepared for me to do. Ephesians 2.10. Living the life God has called us to live. 1 Corinthians 7.17. Taking the time to help Ruth, even if there's a whole national calamity that I can't do anything about. That's the Bible's solution to hard times. When Jesus came, he could have changed all kinds of things. He could have set himself up as king, completely changed the structure of society by making himself the true king. He refused to do that. Instead, he said, I'm going to go around, I'm going to talk to lepers. I'm going to talk to tax collectors and harlots. I'm going to talk to those that are destitute and broken. I'm even going to talk to a Gentile every now and then. I'm going to extend to them the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do. God could have done anything. He set up the church. So when people ask me questions like, what are we doing about fill-in-the-blank crisis of the day? This is what we're doing. This right here. Well, it doesn't seem very big. You're thinking small. How many people are in this room? You got about 120 people come to this church maybe? Kids, all generations that are here? Every one of those lives is getting taught the word week in and week out being around other brothers and sisters in Christ that are showing love to them. We're seeing things change, mostly slowly. We're seeing a love for God. We're seeing marriages healed. We're seeing kids get their act together. We're seeing the doctrines of God being taught with great clarity. People being drawn not to me or the church, but to the word and to the God that inspired the word. You don't think that's not going to have an impact on this city? It's already having an impact. On the nation, God can do all things. Tabitha sowed, man. Moses had a stick, and God changed the whole world. Is there any verse you can give me, though, Tyler, to back this up? Well, of course. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. This is what Paul told us to aspire to, to your ambition as a Christian. Aspire to live quietly 
and mind your own affairs and work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Mind your own business, Paul says. <laughs> take care of your business, but take care of your business. First Timothy says we should pray for the rulers and kings. Oh, yes, we absolutely should. For what? That we can be left alone to live a quiet, godly life. That is the goal. That's the ideal for a Christian. The distraction of national calamity can keep you from cultivating real righteousness right in front of you. So your field, your garden, rightly ordered, rightly cultivated, will bear fruit that will change individual lives and heal hearts. And you don't know if that young woman who you're showing kindness to in the field might not be the ancestress of somebody named David who will lead the nation back to righteousness and who will also be the father of one who we call the son of David, who will save the whole world from its sins and deliver us all. The kindness of Boaz in showing protection and giving a little extra food to somebody led to the birth of Messiah and his death and his resurrection and ultimately to your salvation and mine. Don't ever think that what you can do is too small. Ain't no such thing when God's involved. It, we may be living in a day that is like the time of the judges. I think in some ways we are, and sometimes we can be pessimistic. But that time, times like that, they're filled with real Ruths and real Naomi's who need real help. And that's more important than whatever's happening in Washington. We should be Boaz, shining the light in the darkness, spreading the love of Christ like Jesus would if he was here. So many small stories in the Gospels, aren't there? There's little stories where Jesus helped one person on one day. And that's how we are to conduct ourselves until the day comes when the Lord returns. He shows us mercy and restores all things. But until that day, we will do as the Lord says and occupy, keep busy, mind our own affairs, tend our own garden until he comes.